Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now, unless you're using Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your stories to me has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there. No questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not, not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story and their story is your story and then it's our story and then it's a podcast so it's everybody's story and then you've shared it and gosh that's great huh and even if you don't think you're a nerd you probably are it's easily the most midwestern thing i've ever been a part of Hey everybody, I'm Eric Garneau and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. We're back this week with our final look back at some classic performances of Mary Beth Smith, whose farewell show with the nerds is this Saturday, October 20th, 7pm at the Cards Against Humanity Theater. Mary Beth's moving to LA with her husband, but before they go, we had to give one last big send-off, so that's what she's gonna get. Now in this week's Spotlight episode from November 2015, Mary Beth reflects on a trip to Ireland and an encounter with the celebrity and his music that kind of shapes her life forever, especially if you know anything about the way she got engaged. Uh, also, we get another chance to dive into MB's soulful vocals since she performs the song after her story. That is peak Mary Beth Smith right here, uh, loving a thing fully and sharing that love with everyone listening, and it's a great way to close out our look back on some of her key stories. But it's not over yet. Make sure you come to the Cards Theater, 1917 North Elston, on Saturday for One Last Hurrah featuring Mary Beth and some of her favorite people. You can find the event link on our website and Facebook page as well. We'll see you Saturday. So the theme tonight is a night, uh, an evening with the stars, a night with the stars, because I improvise Star Trek, so obviously they're stars. Uh, the way we took the music tonight is we are going to do songs uh, performed in movies by stars, because you know what? Movie stars are better than us, and we should all pay obeisance to them at all times. <laughs> I don't know. Anyone want to intro this song? Pretty, pretty big performance from a movie that was formative in my years. Mine as well. Yeah. I was telling these guys, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie... But it's over 30. Huh. On VHS, maybe? Yeah, dude, on VHS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe yeah, dude, on VHS. I remember we watched this in my eighth grade communications class for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. It doesn't have anything to do with communications, but we sure as fuck watch it. If I 
yourself, Mary Beth Smith. Thank you, guys. Uh, unknowingly, kind of on theme here. Um, but anyway, uh, on the music theme, that is. Uh, so the first time um, that I saw Glenn Hansard and Marquette Glova were, uh, they were guests on Late Night with David Letterman. I was watching a lot of Late Night at the time because I was living with my parents after my first year of college. And I was very lonely. And uh, it was amazing. And because I had a lot of time on my hands, um, I obsessively looked up uh, things about uh, the song that they performed and the movie that they were in together once. Uh, because I lived in, um, excuse me, but bumfuck South Carolina, 
Uh, it wasn't playing anywhere near me. It's a very small indie film out of Ireland. And uh, at the end of the summer, I had to miss the first few days of school to go to my brother's wedding, and I was being <laughs> a little turd about it. Uh, so, because I had just spent like all summer at home, and all I wanted to do was be back at school because I'm a nerd. Um, and uh, and we had to drive through Philly on the way to the wedding, and I saw that it was playing there, and I asked if my parents would drop me off so I could watch a movie, um, which is like such a God, like what did. I didn't need to do that. But anyway, I saw the movie. It was amazing. I loved it. I fell in love with the music. I would obsessively listen to the soundtrack. Um, it's about two creatives, uh, uh, kind of. Um, I don't know, I'm not going to give you a plot synopsis. Go watch this movie. It's like 80 minutes long. It took 100 grand to make, and it's my favorite movie. And uh, cut to 2008. I took a trip to Ireland um, via study abroad. I lived on campus at Trinity College Dublin for three weeks. And uh, because I wanted to go see places that they had filmed the movie in Dublin, um, I m- turned it into my independent project that we had to do for uh, um, <laughs> for school. <laughs> so I, I, I said that my project was on Irish film, but uh, really I just like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was like, um, <laughs> not kidding at all. So I like, I would like, uh, I, I threw my bags down in, um, in my room the first day we got there, and then I, I went out and walked on Grafton Street. It's this, it goes straight through the middle of Dublin. It's pedestrians only. Uh, there are a lot of what they call buskers there uh, playing for music, as Glenn Hansard does in the film Once. And I was just, like, losing it. It was so cool. Like, I loved this movie so much. I made all my friends watch it, like, one of the first nights of the trip. Um, and it was so awesome to get to experience this city that that is really uh, features in the, in the movie I love so much. So um, one night during the trip, uh, my friends and I had done um, the – Practice the uh, ancient art of pre-gaming because the euro did not have a good exchange rate at the time. Uh, and you can buy cider in two-liter plastic bottles there for the equivalent of, like, $7. Like, why would you not do that? Anywho, um, we were leaving campus, and we saw a big poster for the movie The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And if you've never seen it, it's, like, the most depressing movie I've maybe ever seen. Um, but we were like, that's weird. Why is it? It looked like a premiere was happening. Um, but we didn't think anything of it. We keep walking through the front gates at Trinity College. And uh, as we did, I I kind of looked at someone for too long because he looked familiar. Um, and I didn't know why. But eventually, my uh, vision kind of scanned to the right. And to his right uh, was Glenn Hansard, the star of the film. And uh, I panned back, and I realized that the reason I recognized the person next to him was that uh, I had read so much about the movie and, like, watched so many special features that I recognized the director. Uh, <laughs> his name's John Carney. And I was like, oh, that's that. Okay. Um, so I kind of, like, they were walking, and we were walking, and we passed. And I was like, all right, and B. This is it. Like, this is the only time that you will ever get to say something to Glenn Hansard. And I just, like, turned heel and went around and, like, walked up to him and was like, I'm so sorry, but I, I love your your movie and your music. And, and I, I just wasn't and, – and before I uh, had to stammer out any other words, uh, he interrupted me and he said, oh, thanks, thanks. Uh, and then he said, uh, what are you doing here? Because there were, like, ten – college Americans 
in uh, in Dublin for no reason. And we're like, oh, we're um, we're on a study abroad program, and he's like, oh, brilliant, brilliant. And and uh, and then he's like, I'm Glenn, and I was like. Um, I'm Mary Beth, and like, why did he feel like he needed to introduce himself to me other than to learn my name? What a nice gesture. Uh, as I'm like, oh no, this has to end because I'm not going to be able to do anything else. Uh, my friend Ben turned around, realized who I was talking to, was one of the people that I'd forced to watch this movie. Um, and he, uh, he said, I'm so sorry, but, um, can we get a picture with you? And he just said yes, so I have a picture with him. Um, if you want to like talk to me during the intermission, I'll show it to you. Um, and, and that was it. And we, we went our separate ways. Uh, I found out later that he was going um, to the premiere, Boy in the Striped Pajamas. That was the, the reason for the season, as they say. And uh, we got out of the front gates. Um, we were just going to a bar or something. And I, I kind of like dropped to my knees and like Shawshank Redemption. I was like, "How did that just happen?" I just, and he has to have heard me. Like, there's no way he didn't hear me. Um, So after that, I stopped going to the places that were in the movie because I was like, "I think I got it." (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I have tried to see him in concert uh, anytime he comes through Chicago. I saw him once um, at this little venue in Asheville, North Carolina, too. And he's just the most passionate musician that I've, I've ever witnessed. Um, and I think that about me is what makes him such a star, is that he really imbues everything he does with with passion and energy. And um, you can just tell that, that he's doing it because he truly loves it. Uh, and it shows um, he, or the first show I saw, but he's done it twice, um, as the encore, he'll come back out unplugged and play uh, the opening song to the musical once, or the the movie musical once. And uh, I would like to sing that now if Eric is going to join me. Guys, the show is mostly me. If you're new to the show, I'm up here for, like, every story. That's not true. Uh, No, sometimes I just want to sing a song, but I don't know how to play the guitar, so I make Eric do it. And he always obliges. That's true. It's been a... No, it actually hasn't been that long. I was going to say it's been a while, but it's only been a couple months. Last time I told a story, I did it. Yeah. surface now I'm trying hard to work it out So much has gone misunderstood This mystery only leads to doubt And I didn't understand down and take my hand And if you have something to say You better say it now
Thank you. Emma Smith, guys. Hey, yeah. Talk about a night with the stars. Guys, if you're new, uh, this is an important New York Stories rule. If you say the, the theme of the night in your story, you have to point to the ceiling. And if you have a drink, you have to drink it. I can't tell you why. It's just, it's important, okay? Night with the stars. Coming up next, we're going to get our first guest from Improvised Star Trek, which if you don't know that show, it's a podcast and a live show that is Star Trek but improvised. It's really, really great. This is Nick Wagner. Yeah! I will not be playing a song. Story, I think. So uh, it seems to be a common sentiment this day and age that uh, technology is, we're becoming too dependent on it, you know. Uh, we're losing touch with the people around us. Uh, I want to start off by saying this isn't really a story, it's more of a TED talk. <laughs> Uh, if you write a work on the L in the morning like I do, this is a pretty easy sentiment to, to, to agree with. You see people with their headphones in and staring down at their uh, smartphone screens, and you think, well, maybe we are losing touch with each other. Uh, we're not, you know, making contact with the people on the train with us saying, you know, to the guy across the aisle, hey, Henry, it's nice to see you. I sure hope you have a nice weekend. Say hi to Lorraine for me. If people ever did that. I assume that's what they talked like when that actually happened, <laughs> whenever that might have been. Instead, they're playing video games and they're... Uh, checking Facebook and Instagramming the weird guy across the aisle who is sexting with Lorraine. <laughs> and most commonly, everyone is, with their headphones in, listening to the most recent episode of the improvised Star Trek. <laughs> I do the improvised Star Trek because I love Star Trek, and Star Trek is, is an optimistic view of the future. In Star Trek, technology hasn't taken over. We haven't lost our humanity and our connection with other people. We, people don't go around, you know, with their faces buried in electronic gadgets. I mean, except for Geordi, but that's... <laughs> he gets a pass on that one. Um, Technology in Star Trek is, is used to bring us closer together. It's the means by which we explore uh, and, and make connections with other beings and new life and new civilization. Technology is bringing us all together in Star Trek's vision of the future. So how do we get there? How do we get to Jean-Luc from where we are? Well, uh, the answer is we don't. Star Trek isn't real. <laughs> it's just a story that we tell ourselves. In many ways, it's not even a realistic story. I mean, what about that, you know, that one where Picard gets stranded on a planet uh, and, and he's, uh, he lives an entire lifetime in one day? I mean, that's bullshit, right? <laughs> it was good. That was a good one. <laughs> that one where Kirk and Spock have to fight to the death, you know, and Spock kills Kirk, his best friend, with that thing that they fight with. And then they go back to the ship and, and Spock thinks that Kirk's dead, but... Kirk appears because it's all, it's all been a ruse. And, and Spock is so happy to see his best friend alive, but then he plays it like it's cool, like he doesn't care because he's a Vulcan. He's like, it's no big deal, man. 
I mean, what kind of a bullshit story is that? <laughs> what about the one where uh, Picard gets trapped on a planet with, uh, with a, an alien that he can't understand, right? It's called Darmok. And he's trapped on this planet, and they don't speak the same language, and he realizes that the alien is speaking in metaphor. <laughs> he's using stories to, to, to uh, convey his meaning, but of course it doesn't matter to Picard. He doesn't understand the story that's being referenced. Until he starts to build up a little bit of the story, they can't communicate. But then at the end of the episode, as the alien captain lays dying due to wounds inflicted by the needs of the plot, <laughs> Picard tells him the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, one of the oldest uh, stories that we have on Earth. And in this story, the two, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, are brought together. They're, they're from different realms, actually. Enkidu's a wild man. And uh, they're brought together, and initially they're foes, but they, they learn to become friends at the end of the story. This is echoing uh, the aliens' repeated refrain, Darmok and Jala, that Tanagra. The episode ends with a new iteration of the story, Picard and Dathan at Eladril. In this episode, Star Trek is telling us the importance of storytelling and the power of shared stories. Sharing stories is what truly enables communication in the first place. And through, it's through stories that we define who we are and what a happy ending is and what a good deed is and how it should be rewarded. We tell ourselves what to value and why. And humanity has been telling ourselves these stories since before we even had a way to record them so that they would last. Star Trek is just a story. But it's a story that we tell ourselves about who we are and who we will be in the future. So by producing the improvised Star Trek, a show in which 11 of my closest friends and I pretend to have hilarious misadventures on a spaceship called the USS Sisyphus. We're actually participating in this process of storytelling and retelling and of communal self-definition. And so, so are all of us who are telling stories here tonight and all of you who are here listening and everyone who is at home or listening to the podcast on their morning commute. And you can all look up from your phones at the people around you and tell yourself this bullshit story. <laughs> we're not retreating from humanity. The glow that we're staring into is not a 4.7-inch high-definition sign of the end times. It is the glow of our campfire, and we are listening to the story of ourselves. So what I'm saying is, we're the real Darmoks. <laughs> That was fucking fantastic, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's keep it moving. We have coming up next to the stage a Chicago actress, storyteller. I believe this is still true. You just quit your day job to do this full time, right? Debbie Banos? Come on up. Let's do it. Yeah. That is a brave move, and I applaud you for that. Well, I mean, I quit my stable day job. I now just like... <laughs> anyway, um, stars are stupid. 
All of my problems derive from stars. Ideas like star-crossed lovers. Fuck stars. <clears throat> Think about your fate in the stars. Whatever. <clears throat> Recently, I read about another vision of stars in The Little Prince. Don't have time to explain except to say that The Little Prince is the type of book that you start reading over a bagel thinking you're going to have a great morning and when you finish it you end up bawling hysterically in the waiting room of an audition you completely completely blew. You're too emotionally wrecked to have any real feelings but completely unable to stop crying over a fake imaginary kid. <sighs> My stars. The stars, these untouchable entities that one aspires for, have been splitting my world into separate parallel universes. I, never losing that need to live in each different universe, but each universe unable to exist in the presence of any other universe, go mad. I remember my first universe the one where the electrical sockets were covered to prevent my electrocution, uh, the one where everything was a perfect hue of purple, the one where forever love existed, the one where idealism, idealism, idealism thrived and fear collapsed, the one where I walked with him through the woods. I left that universe in search of brighter stars and my own free will. Sometimes I miss his hands. I remember my second universe, the one where I uncovered sockets to discover their usefulness, the one where black made a new shade of purple, the one where the institution of love existed the one where prudence gave birth to serenity, the one where we met in the middle of the street. I left that universe in search of brighter stars and a purpose. But sometimes I miss his laugh. My third universe, the one where I stuck a key in a socket, there was more black and feelings, love is stupid, the one where nihilism and hedonism hang out. The one where I find something beautiful only to destroy it. If we discovered the theory of everything, then all the known universe could be charted at any time. We could see the end at the beginning. Someone would say, the universe is in state X. Here's our formula, omega, pi, epsilon, bippity, boppity, Einstein, plug in BS number years. The universe is in Y state at BS years. <laughs> Let's work backwards. The state equals fulfilled. The universe equals Debbie. The years equal... Yep, stars are stupid. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Debbie.
What a wonderful line of storytellers we have tonight. Coming up next, another guest from Infrarise Star Trek. She is one of the the incredibly talented editors on the show. Uh, this show is probably the most produced podcast that I've listened to, and I mean that 100% as a compliment. So much thought goes into uh, into making the show with the sound effects and the editing. It is incredibly impressive. One of the people behind that, Hannah Kate Parsons. A night with the stars. Chief O'Brien starred in my very first wet dream. (laughs) What I mean to say is, Star Trek has been there for me from the very beginning. And not only has it been there... It's found its way into my life over and over and over again, like that first wet dream. (laughs) Unexpectedly, but definitely welcomed with open arms. You see, we didn't have a TV. Um, We had a TV. We didn't have TV channels growing up. And so we had uh, recorded episodes of The Next Generation and Voyager and Deep Space Nine, and it was my family's religion was watching Star Trek together. Um, One of my clearest memories um, from that early time uh, was being eight years old and wistfully dropping down onto the lawn after I had realized that the next generation was ending and saying for the very first time, it's the end of an era. Uh, I made paper mache uh, statues of the cast of Star Trek Voyager (laughs) Like, all these things that I grew up thinking were just, like, really normal things to do <laughs> that I now look back on and realize that it was such a deep part of who I was even that early on. Um, in high school, for some reason, Jerry Taylor, who was one of the um, writers on The Next Generation and creators of Star Trek Voyager... She lived in my community and would do community theater with us. And I would be, like, in the dressing room with her. I lived in very rural northern California, very isolated from the world, it seemed. And so she was, like, the biggest celebrity I'd ever met. And um, I would pester her endlessly about gossip from being backstage at The Next Generation and Voyager. And all I ever got out of her was... Uh, how bitchy Crusher and Troy were (laughs) about their makeup all the time. That's the main thing I remembered hearing. Um, But yeah, after uh, after I left my hometown, I went off to college in another city, and um, Star Trek sort of left me for a while. And... um, It wasn't until I moved to Chicago that I found it again. And it it took under, I think it was in the first couple months I was here, 
I discovered Improvised Star Trek. And it was the most amazing discovery that I had ever had. I mean, I I remember I, I took a class with Nick Wagner, and he said in, in his introduction, um, he's a cast member, he was just speaking, um, he said that he was in the improvised Star Trek, and I, I just, my jaw dropped, and I all, I was just like listening intently to every single thing he was saying, and I, like, that was my whole purpose from then on, was I must find this thing and be in its presence, and I, and then I became the biggest groupie of it, and just hung around annoyingly all the time, and um, now I edit the podcast and um, do tech sometimes for it, uh, but It's so neat to 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 be in a place in my life where I can see how strongly it influenced me when I was younger and then to see net like how happy it makes me. There's nothing that makes me happier than watching Star Trek episodes and making fun of them <laughs> and laughing about them with other intelligent people who love it also it's it's a high that i have never experienced anywhere else and it's really the the marker that i look for now that star trek is like has been imprinted on my soul and it's it's pieces of star trek that lead me from right place to right place to right place to right place to right place. Like, I assume, stars led people <laughs> in other times. With, I think, indisputably the best opening line in all of your story's history, I can't imagine what would top that. Thank you so much, Hannah. <laughs> that was so great. Guys, coming up next to the stage, we have a stand-up comedian uh, originally from Arkansas. This is Whitney Wasson. Holy shit. I, I just moved to Chicago in September. This is an awesome place. Like, so cool. Stuff like this would never happen in Arkansas. That's why I moved. So, um, so uh, I'm going to tell a story that's a true story. Uh, a celebrity is involved, but it takes a minute. So, like, just wait for it, okay? <laughs> so, um, I grew up in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is like a dusty manufacturing town. Nothing exciting happens. Uh, the motto of the town is, life's worth living in Fort Smith, Arkansas. <laughs> which, to me, sounds like a gentle reminder not to off yourself, right? <laughs> like, like, it's going to be okay. So, for my 18th birthday... I was sure that I was going to get a car, right? I was sure. Like, it was the time. I had no real reason to think this, except that my parents were being kind of shady. Like, they were being sort of like Christmas Eve, giggly, secretive, you know, the whole time, like the week leading up to my birthday. So uh, I woke up, and I expected, like, there it would be outside, right, with, like, a red bow on it, like my new used car. <laughs> no car. Uh, I figured, okay, well, uh, maybe after school I'll come home, there'll be a car waiting for me. No. No such thing. Uh, we went out to dinner like like usual. No keys were presented. There was nothing. You know, what? 
And uh, I was just, the whole time I was just filled with anticipation that if it wasn't going to be a car, it was going to be something awesome, you know. So <laughs> we, we finished dinner, and my parents turned to each other. And they sort of, like, nod and, like, wink, and there's this moment. And my mom goes, okay, Whitney, go go upstairs, put on something really nice, right? And I was like, all right, family trip to the car lot, you know? <laughs> and then she turns to my 12-year-old sister and says the same thing. You go get dressed, too. Get dressed up really nice. All right, photo op at the car lot, I guess. I don't know, whatever. So, uh, so we get in the car, and we start going to... A place where stars aren't made, which is the Fort Smith Civic Center. <laughs> no dreams are made there. <laughs> Nothing exciting. We pull up, and my parents uh, tell me and my sister get, to get out of the car, and then my mom pulls out this like big envelope, and she utters three words now famous in my household. David Copperfield ticket! <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm as confused as you guys are. David Copperfield, 90s magician. They dump us out of the car, so there I am with my little sister at this show. And there wasn't enough time because we were kind of late, and like there wasn't enough time for them to see like me pretending to give a shit. You know what I mean? Like, so I got out of the car. I, you know, I go in with my little sister in my hand, basically, and I go to see this show, and like. When you think David Copperfield, you think, like, cool, married to Claudia Schiffer, wearing a leather jacket, David Copperfield, right? That was, like, ten years before, you know? This is, like, maybe does some Pepsi commercials occasionally, David Copperfield. So I go into the show, and, like, no joke, his show was showing PowerPoint screens with his best tricks. So, like, a screen came down, and he was like, guess what? I made a tank disappear one time. Like, I think maybe he did a trick with a ball or something, and then for some reason, whenever my sister tells the story, she mentions that there was a duck. He had a duck come out as a big plot point in the show. Again, confused as you guys are. But basically, to make a long story short, it was terrible. And I was sitting there just burning in my seat the whole time. Like, what the fuck? Like, why would my parents waste my birthday, you know, doing this? <laughs> Apparently what had happened is I had been watching TV and, a, like, a, a news spot came on the news, you know, for, for this show because it was a big deal in enforcement. <laughs> and I had sarcastically said, you know what would be amazing? Going to David Carr. <laughs> and what really sucks is that these were not cheap tickets. We had, like, primo seats. You know, my parents didn't have any money. They did what they thought was, like, a really nice gift for their baby girl. So the show is horrendous. I walk out livid with my sister beside me. She's, she's embarrassing, you know. And my parents see me, and their faces just fall they knew it was a waste. They knew I'd had a really shitty time. And it's still to this day like a sore point for my parents. But the thing is, like, I was such an entitled asshole. You know what I mean? <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you still have parents around, love them. They do the sweetest things for you without you knowing it. And if you're a kid and you're going to get presents sometime... Lower your expectations. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. I'm
Thank you so much, Whitney. Welcome to Chicago. That story was great. It does make this introduction a little bit awkward, guys. Coming next to the stage, Mr. David Copperfield. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. Guess we, <laughs> we have one more story in this half. Then we're going to take a short break. This next gentleman is a Chicago podcaster, uh, frequent contributor to your stories. He's a great guy, Mr. Bill Nielsen. Yeah! Thanks, guys. Thank you. Uh, when I was growing up and in my teens and not in my 20s, but in my early 30s, I've been a big fan of professional wrestling. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> Thank God for one of us. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I, I, I think a lot of us at least were aware of it, though, when we were kids and we had our, our favorite wrestlers. Uh, people a little bit older than me probably were fans of Hulk Hogan and his coked-out promos wearing a bandana to hide his bald spot. <laughs> And people a little younger than me were probably fans of Steve Austin flipping double birds and not hiding his baldness at all. <laughs> but my favorite wrestler growing up was Brett the Hitman Hart. Yes. Now, you might better know Brett for his one appearance on The Simpsons. <laughs> but to me, Brett was the guy who made wrestling seem real, even though it was fake. He had the personality of a mailbox. He wore a jacket directly stolen from the Sgt. Pepper album. <laughs> but, and, and maybe because I really like sports, it stuck out to me that he seemed to put a lot of passion into making everything look crisp and real. Uh, when you throw him into the corner, he doesn't just kind of land softly there with his back. He, he runs into it, and then he slams back to the ground as hard as he can. And then... <laughs> When he's wrestling, he does these intricate combinations of pins and submission holds. He's not running around and dropping elbows or waving his hand in front of his face. He was trying to make it seem like an actual sporting competition. And, and I guess that resonated with me. I, I appreciated that. And during my childhood, he was my favorite wrestler. And there was not too many others that really stood out. There, there was the one, two, three kid. And there was Tatanka, the Native American wrestler. <laughs> but wrestling didn't stick with me at that time. I, I, I've come and gone since then. And Brett, he kept trying to wrestle. He, he wrestled throughout the 80s. He wrestled through the mid-90s. And in, in 1997, he was involved in an incident that's famous in wrestling history, at least, called the Montreal Screwjob. And without taking, up my, without taking up my entire five minutes explaining this, basically, Brett was told to lose a match, but he didn't want to, so they made him lose anyway. And the last time that he appeared on WWF television for 14 years was him spitting a loogie on the owner of the company, Vince McMahon, on, on live pay-per-view uh, video. In 1999, Brett Hart took an actual legitimate kick to the head and suffered a serious concussion, which went undiagnosed for weeks. And as a result, he had to retire from wrestling. In 2001, Bret Hart suffered a stroke uh, while he was out bicycling. And that seriously affected his mobility, his speech, his emotional stability. Um, he didn't die. He's, he's alive to this day. But I had fallen out of touch with him and as a fan and... In 2013, I was in Toronto. I was seeing an improv show at this place called the Comedy Bar. And while I was there, it was the, the, the lead, the headliner. And they are doing a scene, and it's about, like, a kid comes home from school and he's getting bullied. And the mom's like, oh, I knew two kids who can bust bullies up. And I was like, as, as a shitty 
beginner improviser would be like, well, that was a bad move. There are no more improvisers on the side. How could you do that? <laughs> and out comes Brett the Hitman Hart and Roddy Roddy Piper. <laughs> <laughs> and the crowd goes insane for them, and I go insane for them, because uh, Brett and Piper are both Canadian. Uh, Brett is considered somewhat of a national hero in Canada. And I was so excited to see him, but he's, he's mumbling. Uh, he's, he's hard to understand, really. And they're, the improvisers are doing a good job of trying to set him up for some softballs to make him have some fun lines. And at one point, they're like, oh, why don't you just show us what you're going to do? And then he c- turns around and he punches one of the improvisers. <laughs> a friend of a friend of a friend, I was reassured that this was not a, a worked fake punch. This was a real punch. <laughs> the only thing that topped that in awkwardness was, was Piper rambling on about his attempts to cross the U.S. border while wearing blackface. Oh, you see, he was trying to play mind games with his African-American opponent, and that's why it was okay. <laughs> For the podcast, it wasn't okay. It was not okay. <laughs> And it really, it really hurt me to see that. Uh, I, I felt, I, I knew based on Wikipedia that these things had happened, but I had not seen the toll they had taken on him. I went back and watched. In 2010, he had a brief comeback in the WWE now, and I watched his matches, and he, he didn't even ba- vaguely resemble the wrestler he once was. He couldn't move around anymore. Because of the concussions, he couldn't do a safe fall on the mat or a bump. So he just had to stay standing the entire match. And nowadays, you, might, would, you would only ever see him doing an interview or complaining about how things used to be and, and how he was screwed and how he's kind of a, a bitter old man now. For him, even though wrestling is completely fake, he wanted it to be real. And he cared about being the best, and he cared about who won or lost. And... Even now, he, he still thinks he's the best, and he still cares about who won or lost. And in many ways, he did lose. And as much as he is kind of a jerk, he's, he's an, as I've read in his autobiography, he's an adulterer. He's a, he's a drug user. I can't really, I, can't, I can still identify with the fact that he wanted to be the best. Uh, thank you very much. Guys, that's something to, to think hard about over break. My favorite wrestler is real name. It's Sergeant Slaughter because he was in G.I. Joe. He took on Serpentor. Name one other wrestler who could take on Serpentor. You can't. Case closed. All right. Anyway, we're going to take like a... I don't know. I, this, this is like almost breaking the rules because this is this is a... Diag- well, I guess the last song was diegetic too. This is not a song that was covered in the movie. This is a song that originated from the movie, but it's still sung by famous people. And it's still important in the movie and it's still a sweet song. So. You know, Steve's Very on. Very important in the movie. You know. Uh, Ethan Embry. They're famous, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the name of the movie. Their manager was really famous. Well, what movie Who? is it? <laughs> you doing that thing you do. Breaking my heart into a million pieces. Like you always do.
has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs. Thanks for listening.